0: Ramble.
1: I'm the type of person who's hyper aware of what I put in my body. I have a lot of food intolerances, and it feels like every year I discover new ones. If you have allergies or IBS, or you choose to avoid certain foods for personal reasons, you know the food FOMO is real, and it's just not fun. A month ago, we went to Jeju Island, which is famous for pork, but because I'm allergic, I was just standing there watching everyone gobble up the food. And recently, I almost gave up morning coffee because I'm so sensitive to dairy these days, and black coffee just does not hit the spot. Thankfully, I found out about minor figures, and now I don't have to start my days on a bitter note. Literally, Minor Figures is an oat milk brand. They're 100% plant-based, carbon-neutral, and B Corp certified, so not only do I get to enjoy my coffee, but I don't have to worry about anything irritating my stomach. There are no stabilizers or additives, and what I love is that Minor Figures Barista Oat really helps showcase the natural characteristics of the coffee. It's not just there to carry the coffee flavor, but it enhances it. So you know how at-home coffee never hits the spot like coffee shop coffee? With Minor Figures, it does. You can really taste the coffee versus the oat milk. It's delicious. You can buy their products online at us.minorfigures.com. You can also discover fun games, music playlists, and explore their store locator to see where you can buy Minor Figures near you. For my listeners in Denver and New York, Minor Figures is also now available at Whole Foods.
0: Bada bing, bada boom.
1: Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. The heat was suffocating. Imagine being stuck in your car with no AC on in Florida in the middle of July, okay? That's comparable to being slow-cooked in an oven. She looked up at her rearview mirror and swiped the sweat off her forehead and on the back of her palm, a smear of dark-colored pigment. Makeup, perhaps? Maybe she was sweating her makeup off. She readjusted the mirror and fumbled with something before she reached for her phone and she hissed to the other person on the line. The makeup is melting off and my beard won't stay on. It's too hot. My face is sweating. Her mind was racing. The person on the other line just said, no, but you have to keep the makeup on. I want you to look like a black guy. Keep the beard on. Yeah, she was doing blackface in the middle of a parking lot in her car on a hot summer day in Florida. She wasn't doing it as some sort of racist costume or to get a part in a racist movie. No, she was doing it to commit murder. So does it even count as blackface? Yeah. That's really what these people were thinking. Did it even really matter, though? Because she was sweating her makeup right off. The person on the other end of the phone had already explained to her that under no circumstances was she allowed to turn the AC on in the car while she waited. It's a peculiar rule. It doesn't even seem to make sense. Her entire disguise was melting off of her face. Surely, this should have been indication enough that she shouldn't trust the one giving instructions. But she did everything she was told to a T. She even walked around the parking lot to see if anyone would recognize that she was not indeed a black man, but a tiny petite little white woman. Nobody did. She triumphantly went back to her car, made herself comfortable, and now all she had to do was wait till the target got out of work. She knew the rules. Check your surroundings. Wear men's shoes that are five sizes too big. Wobble around. It went well with her, her, with her baggy sweatpants and sweatshirt. Gloves were required, of course. And when she had eyes on the target, she would prop up the rifle, aim, And shoot. The last rule that she had was she was supposed to look into the target's eyes while she shot, while she killed them. Taking someone's life should be easy, especially if you have the perfect disguise for it. What could possibly go wrong? Literally, Everything in this case goes wrong Not only is the killer doing blackface And effectively trying to pin the murder On an innocent black man But she would later find herself In the middle of the Florida woods at night Nothing but the terrifying idea Of a crocodile sneaking up on her From the swamp nearby And she would be rummaging through The the wooded floor frantically With a metal detector And an ice cream scoop
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, what is she doing with an ice cream scoop? Is she digging her own grave?
0: ice cream scoop like and a little cream ice scooper. cream ball scooper. Yes.
1: A little melon scooper. <laughs> Welcome to the very very strange case that is today's pod. Buckle up, it's going to get weird. As always, full show notes are available at rottenmanglepodcast.com. But there's an incredible book on this case It is written by one of the biggest authors in true crime M. William Phelps It's going to be linked in the show notes Along with a lot of his other books that I recommend He does fantastic deep dives He's very successful at getting the emotions of a case without much bias And his writing style just really immerses you The book felt incredibly effortless to get sucked into I know that sounds strange But I, I find it to be very important when it comes to true Stories like this one. You have to get into it to really feel the emotions of everything that's happened. And I think that's the only way to do it justice. There's also a ton of available court files, transcripts, depositions, all in the show notes. And with that being said, let's get into the story. The story revolves around two women, two women that had completely different life trajectories. They had no plan to cross paths, and normally they wouldn't. The only thing that these two had in common was that they were both sexually assaulted and their lives would intersect in a deadly way. Sandy was in a pretty good mood. She's working as a bartender at the Green Iguana Bar and she was a stellar bartender, okay? She knew how to mingle with those customers. She would joke, make them literally hold their bellies, holding in their laughter. And whenever she smiled... It was radiant. She had this perfectly, perpetually sun-kissed skin and these pearly white teeth. I mean, it was magnetic. It was hard to not smile when she smiled, no matter how hard you tried. And the fact that she worked hard, she earned her respect and admiration, not just from her regulars, but also from her coworkers. Sandy had a daughter. She loved talking about her daughter. Her daughter lived in Texas, but she was spoiled in the best way possible. If Sandy loved you, you were going to get showered with affection, love, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts. Gift giving was a huge love language of Sandy's. Her life sounds honestly really good. No, but she fought tooth and nail. To get to this point in life, she had her fair share of nightmares, mainly in the relationship department. So her first relationship, she just couldn't find the right guy. On paper, Sandy was a catch. In real life, even better. But she was the type that would just kind of get swept up in these bad relationships. When she was 22, she gets engaged to a man. Let's call him Sam. The two of them go on to have a daughter together. And eventually, both of them thought, this isn't going to work out. We have a kid, but we're not happy with each other. Why don't we co-parent? There's no bad blood. Let's just do our own things. The only hard part was Sam lived out of state and Sandy was moving back to Florida. Sam also got full custody of the daughter, but Sandy was very present. She visited any chance she got. She was there for all the holidays, all the birthdays. They were really, really close. Her daughter grew up knowing that Sandy, her mom, loved her just unconditionally. This was a mom that she could count on. So after about 10 years of that, in her early 30s, Sandy meets the man of her dreams. She's 30 now, right? She knows without a shadow of doubt, this right here, this is true love. She could feel it in every bone of her body. This is her soulmate. She's not even being young and naive anymore. She's serious. She loves this man. He loved her daughter. I mean, that's super important to her. Her life is perfect. They're getting a house. They're going to get that white picket fence. This family, the perfect life. It was all at her fingertips. She could almost taste it. But right before the wedding, her fiance gets cold feet. And he told her, I don't think you're the one. And he left that day. Sandy was completely devastated and just utterly heartbroken. At 30 years old, she had never felt depression and disappointment this deeply. It was a sobering moment for Sandy. She learned a very valuable lesson, which is, you know what? I'm over these relationships. No more men in my life. Okay. I can't depend on a man to bring me happiness. Mm -mm. Nope. I'm going to focus on being a good mom, a good daughter. Those are the relationships that matter. Who cares about marriage? So from there, Sandy starts dating casually. She never found herself falling for anybody else. Maybe it was more that she wouldn't let herself I think she just put these guards up and she was so scared of feeling that that heartbroken pain again. And so she's just casually dating when something irreversibly traumatic happened to her. She's working as a bartender at this uh, big bar club. And the bouncer of the bar kidnapped her, held her hostage, tortured and raped her. He threatened to kill her. He beat her to a bloody pulp. It was the single most traumatic incident of her entire life. And while she was recovering, as much as you can from something like this, she met Tony. Sandy was to Tony what Sandy's ex-fiance had been to her. Tony believed Sandy was his soulmate. He idolized her. He treated her like this queen. He was so kind to her. He worked hard to try and get her all the things in life that she wanted. He was gentle, patient with her. He even bought them a beautiful two-story townhome in this uh, clean, family-friendly, safe neighborhood in Tampa Bay, Florida. Sandy's dream of that white picket fence, the perfect family, it's right there. It's right there. But she's just not into it anymore. Her heart's just not in it. Whether it's because she was skeptical and she was too scared of getting hurt again. Whether they weren't meant for each other and they just didn't click in the way that she wanted. There weren't any sparks. I don't know. But July 5th of 2003, she's cleaning up and gearing up to clock out of her bartending shift at the Green Iguana Bar. Her boss casually asks her, you know, how's your life, Sandy? Oh yeah, how are things with your boyfriend? What's his name? Tony, um, it's complicated. (laughs) It was complicated. Sandy and Tony lived together, but they slept in separate rooms. If you asked Tony how things were going, he would say that they were super happy. It's been the best two years of his life in this relationship. He's planning on getting married to Sandy. If you asked those that were close to Sandy, they would say, she's not really into him. In fact, I think she might be seeing other people. I don't know. But when Sandy's boss asked her how things were going, even he could tell. Things weren't too hot. She said, I'm seeing a man that takes care of me, okay? oh you live with him right yeah we have a town home together he uh takes care of me he's respectful i just i guess i don't have those kinds of feelings for him he's passive we live in the same house but in separate rooms and i love him but i don't know if i'm in love with him he's perfect on paper it's just i guess it's just not what i wanted But despite this rather real intense conversation, Sandy left the bar after her shift in a fantastic mood. She seemed happy. If she had any inkling, any suspicion that she was about to get murdered at the hands of the wicked man that had previously kidnapped and sexually assaulted her, that she was going to be followed home from work and murdered in her own garage, she would have alerted someone. But how does anyone predict that such evil exists in this world? Ashley had a pretty rough life from the get-go. She too was sexually abused, but it started pretty early on in her life. Most of her family members were walking flagpoles, and at the top they would have like a 5 foot by 7 foot red flag swaying in the wind. It was so big and so blatant, you couldn't even miss it. What I'm trying to say is, her family, these are not the type of people that I would want to help shape my brain during my formative years. Even the day of Ashley's birth, there was like a shadow looming over the delivery room. Where's the biological dad? He's nowhere to be seen. And it's not that he had skipped town. It's not that he wanted nothing to do with Ashley. Honestly, maybe that could have been better. But rather, Ashley's biological dad was in prison by the time that she was born on sexual assault charges. Ashley's mom, Georgia Ayers, did not make up for the lack of a father figure. Instead, she just crumbled under the pressure of being a single parent. The best way to describe Ashley's mom is emotionally unavailable alcoholic. But that's not even her worst trait. Her greatest weakness, probably, was her horrible taste in men and her incredible yearning to bring them into the family home around her kids as soon as they start dating. You're like, wait, kids? Ashley has a sibling? Okay, Ashley has an older brother who's not involved in her life because he was in prison on charges of accessory to manslaughter. Oh my gosh. Okay, so her brother is young when this happened. Ashley's brother was hanging out with some of his fellow teenage friends and for some bizarre reason, they had a gun. They're horsing around, these teenagers, they're messing around with it and boom, it accidentally goes off and mortally wounds a friend in that group. Horrible, right? Horrible. It gets worse. Her brother wasn't charged for playing with a gun and it accidentally firing a bullet into his friend. No, her brother was charged with dragging that shot friend out into the woods where he was left to die. So, walking flagpoles, okay? Ashley's life was one of instability. I mean, she had no routine, and it's been proven that during the early years of life, kids thrive, On routines, Ashley's constantly changing schools, never making lasting friendships, changing friends, and her mom is constantly changing boyfriends, none of whom were great to even begin with. Side note, Ashley endures sexual abuse in her early years, but there's no further information. We have no idea at whose hands. A relative, a family member, a new stepdad. We have no clue, but it clearly traumatized her. The only constant in her life was her grandma. That was the only one who gave Ashley unconditional parental love. That's very different. Okay, there's love, but there's parental love and you need so much of that growing up. And then her grandma passed. Ashley was in high school. You know, I thought about this. I don't know if it makes it better or worse. So my grandfather passed away when I was much younger and sometimes I wonder if it helped because I couldn't understand the concept as well. The passing? Yeah, like I I, I think I was more easily able to accept the messages that people would give me of like, he's looking over you right now. He's in a better place. Mm,
0: yeah, so you're saying, is it more traumatizing for her to experience yes. it in high school?
1: Yeah, because uh, my other grandfather passed away and I was not anywhere near as close to him, but... I started thinking like, wow, life is so unfair. Mm. Like I just had much deeper thoughts of life is full of falling in love and then having these people ripped away from you.
0: That is interesting.
1: So I I wonder. And then I wonder if it gets a little bit easier as you grow even older, maybe in your 50s, maybe it still hurts. Okay, I think the pain of losing a child is a completely different thing. But I'm talking about, you know, natural passings of grandparents and elderly people. Yeah, I, I don't know. Interesting. So anyway. It was horrible for Ashley, not just because she was in high school and her grandma died, but her own mother in the throes of Ashley's grief over losing her grandma. Her mom is like, you know what? That's your fault. She died because of you. Why? We have no idea why. She Mm -hmm. was probably drunk out of her mind, angry that her mom favored her grandchild over her. Like there was just a lot of weird stuff going on in this house. It doesn't even make sense. And this woman, Georgia, said it with her full chest. And she said it so often Ashley might have even begun to believe it. In honor of her grandma, though, Ashley's like, I'm going to turn my life around. The woman that my grandmother would have been proud of is not the woman I am today. So Ashley starts studying hard. She graduates high school with excellent grades, enrolls in a local community college, and she's relatively staying out of trouble. She's passionate about getting out of her depressing living conditions. She hates her abusive mom and hates her abusive loser boyfriends even more. So by September 2002, Ashley's almost 20. She's very young. She's studying in college and working part-time at Planet Smoothie. Planet Smoothie is, um, plot twist, a smoothie place. But think less green juices and more protein smoothies. And this is going to give you a good idea of the clientele that's coming in and out. It's also probably why they were located right across the street from the Brandon Athletic Club, which was a popular gym in the Brandon, Florida area. Being surrounded by all these healthy, fit gym bros and gym people, Ashley decided, what the hell? I'm going to join that gym. It's right across the street. I can go after my shift or before my shift. And you know what? Maybe it's going to help with my mental health. That's what all these gym bros are saying. The endorphins of working out. You got it, right? So she's like, okay, sign me up. Now, if we're talking about conventional beauty standards and not about, I don't know, cardiovascular health and all the other reasons that everyone should exercise but just beauty standards ashley was beautiful she had sparkling green eyes silky brown hair an effortless hourglass figure she was the girl next door type she was breathtaking not long after joining the gym ashley runs into an employee there a personal trainer timothy okay hurry quick male personal trainer what's the first image that comes to mind yeah that's timothy Like, just stereotypical male personal gym bro trainer. He's got the bod, he's tall, extremely muscular. He's so muscular, in fact, that you can't help but question, I don't know, is that even biologically achievable? I don't think so. I got my little own suspicions about you, okay? And if you start talking to him, he'll probably reach into his little gym bag and whip out a black plastic container of seasoned chicken breast, brown rice, and broccoli with a bit of teriyaki sauce on the side. Yeah, he's that guy. He's obsessed. Timothy was obsessed with dieting, working out, taking supplements, supplements. And just to really picture him further, he's six foot two, 220 pounds of pure muscle. And he's rocking a Mr. Clean shaved head. You know, Mr. Clean. (laughs) Oh, my God. You know who's coming to mind right now? Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Okay, guys, if you have not looked up Jeff Bezos recently, he went from tech bro to giga Chad after his divorce. I don't even know what happened. It's insane. Yeah, you would think that he's in the Amazon warehouses just moving the shipping containers by himself. He's bulked up. He's definitely not doing that, though. He's a billionaire, so he's paying other people to do that great um, ashley was like wow this guy is honestly pretty hot she was smitten even more so when he offered her a free one-on-one personal training session <laughs> let me show you how to work these machines soon enough they trained together for nearly two weeks before timothy her personal trainer became her boyfriend there was a bit of an age gap though he was 29 she was 20 it's fine. Nine years isn't too bad. Ashley was in love, and this was her chance at one of those epic love romances. She had been hurt in the past, sexually abused as a child. Maybe this is the guy that helps her trust people again. And I know you're expecting romance. You're expecting a crazy story after that setup. And to Ashley, it was... But to us, we're probably going to be like, uh, okay, that's weird. It's not the most conventional relationship, and maybe that's why it worked. Timothy made Ashley laugh. So instead of buying her a bouquet of roses and saying these sweet nothings to her, their first date, they go to the movies. Ashley's walking ahead of Timothy, up to the ticket counter. She turns back to see if he's walking behind her, and he's just standing there, mouth open, staring at her butt.
0: He's not paying for the tickets.
1: I'm not sure if he did. (laughs) (laughs) And she rolls her eyes and she says, you really have the audacity to stare at my ass so openly on a first date. And he just laughs this big laugh. Sorry, sorry. I was just looking for the place on your back where I'm going to get my name tattooed. Ashley looked at him shocked. But she can't help but laugh. It's such a bold statement to make on a first date. It's almost a pretty solid icebreaker. Which, funny enough, both Ashley and Timothy would get each other's names tattooed on each other's lower backs, yeah. I guess he manifested it or whatever. So after the first date, Timothy drives her back to her car, which they left at the gym. Her beloved Volkswagen Beetle, I mean, I tell you, this is her prized possession. I cannot stress this to you enough, how much she loved this Volkswagen. He drove her back, and knowing that she lived with her mom still, he asked, is it okay with your mom if we go back to my apartment? Ashley took the comment way too seriously. She got riled up. She said, I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. Yes, it's fine. A few days later, they go on another date. And very quickly, they enter into this relationship. Ashley potentially went into a relationship thinking that this was the guy who would help her to heal her. But she realized maybe they were destined to heal each other. Timothy had his own trauma that he was bringing to the relationship, which makes sense. Everybody has a past. But Timothy's was pretty dark. So he had very high highs and very low lows. When he was at the top, he managed to rise in the ranks of football, playing for the Ohio State Buckeyes. When football didn't plan out the way he wanted, he went into boxing. He boxed for nearly a decade. And at the height of his career, he had signed small modeling gigs like contract modeling gigs with Armani and flew to Milan and would have all these crazy campaigns. His life sounded perfect. But it wasn't because behind all of this, his father beat him nearly every single day within an inch of his life. The beatings would get so bad that Timothy ended up losing a kidney when he was younger. Mm. And he's kind of had daddy issues ever since. They tried to help each other with their trauma. And he told Ashley, you know, you're a great girlfriend. And one day you would make a great wife for anyone or even a great mother. And that probably struck a chord with her considering she didn't have a good relationship with her own mom and probably deemed her an unfit mother. They were in love. Very quickly, they move in together, get married. and 4th of July weekend, July 5th, Ashley's driving back home from running a few errands for the couple. She calls Timothy. They agreed to order a pizza, so it'd be ready to eat when she gets home. She's pretty hungry, right? And he picks up and she tells him, I want pizza. Pizza? Yes, pizza. Okay, what kind? I want double cheese with chicken and tomatoes. Ashley, you cannot have double cheese. Remember the diet that you're on? No double cheese. Ashley could feel the tears forming in her eyes. She hung up the phone, put both hands on the steering wheel, gripped them until her knuckles were white. I mean, yeah, it was probably healthier to not get a double cheese pizza, but did he really have to deny her a double cheese pizza like that after everything that she had done for him? He had agreed. Double cheese pizza was her reward for killing Sandy. What? By 11 p.m., Tony was already asleep. Tony is Sandy's boyfriend. He tries to wait up for Sandy to get home after her bartending shifts, but it was a long weekend. The 4th of July just happened. He was dozing off without even realizing it. And as he's drifting, he hears a series of loud booms. And he wasn't immediately panicked. He wasn't that deep into sleep to feel disoriented. He quickly thought, okay, it's the 4th of July weekend. It's probably fireworks. Normally, he would go right back to sleep. But these fireworks, they sounded like they had been set off right underneath his bedroom from the kitchen or something. Oh my God, are some little rascal teenagers setting off fireworks in my front yard? Like, that's what it sounds like. Tony didn't even have time to put on a slipper or a robe. He rushed downstairs trying to give these teenagers a piece of his mind. He goes to the front door, looks through the peephole. Nothing. No one. Not even a teenager running off in the distance at full speed. Nothing. But he was sure of what he heard. I mean, it was a series of loud booms. Like, he's not losing his mind. He walks through the kitchen to get to the garage door and on his way there, he glances at the microwave clock out of habit, eleven ten PM. Okay. Interesting. Sandy should be home. He opened the door and in the dark, he could clearly see Sandy's car was parked inside the garage, but the garage door was wide open. Okay. Maybe she had just pulled in and was gathering her stuff and he went to help her, but he felt this painful slice. He looked down and he had stepped on broken shards of glass on the floor. He ran to the driver's side window, cutting up the soles of his feet. And when he peered into Sandy's car door, adrenaline overtook him. He leaned in, cutting his hands and elbows on the jagged window edges. He didn't care. He didn't feel pain because the love of his life was sitting in the driver's side seat, covered in blood. He grabbed her phone, dialed 911, and Tony would never forgive himself for going to the front door first instead of the garage. He couldn't have known, but I guess that's the thing, you know? Our brains see the logic, we refuse to accept it. He just would never forgive himself for that. The paramedics, they rushed to the scene, and Sandy still had a pulse, but she was already losing too much blood. She would be pronounced dead shortly after arriving at the hospital. Her body would shut down. And of course, the first people the police are looking at, first person, it's gonna be Tony. Tony. Some even came to the conclusion that he was guilty before even understanding the case. The guy called 911. He was upstairs sleeping while it happened. No alibi, just sleeping. Okay. He's calm and collected. Look at him. Look at him in the hospital. He's calm, collected. And, you know, we kn- we saw the victim. Sandy's a bartender. He doesn't really fit her type, you know? He's mm, It's just not what I think that she'd be interested in, you know, just based off looks. So they surmised, without any evidence, that maybe he had gotten jealous and killed her. But when the investigator went to question Tony, he was anything but suspicious. He had this hollow look in his eyes, his skin was sagging, the color was completely drained from his face, and the officers, they knew that look. That is the look of someone whose reality is closing in on them. He looked like he was breaking apart in front of their eyes. As the minutes passed, the more the realization hit and the more he was breaking down and becoming like a shell of a human. And he looked up at the detectives and he gave them a letter. He told them, Sandy gave this to me and she said that if anything ever happened to her or if she was killed, I was supposed to give this to the police. The detectives read it. In Sandy's own handwriting, it read, If anything should ever happen to me, contact these detectives that are investigating the sexual battery kidnapping case I was involved in. The detectives decided to listen to Sandy, even though she wasn't even here anymore. They listened and they found out that the first court hearing for her kidnapping sexual assault case was scheduled for just two weeks from the day that she was murdered. Very convenient timing for the defendant. And Sandy had just pointed a finger at the defendant from the grave. It was time to take a deep look. Into Timothy Tracy Humphreys. Timothy goes by Tracy, and Tracy grew up in Iowa. We don't know much about his childhood, but we do know that he started running into trouble as young as 19 years old. Probably younger, because let's be real, I don't know if his first crime was at 19 for stealing a whole pickup truck and then stealing gas to fuel that truck. That just sounds like a very big first crime. A few months later, he's arrested for assault. He punched a guy in the face, followed him around, threatening to stab him with a knife. Oh, and for good measure, he threw a rock through the guy's car windshield. So again, I'm not sure if I believe this is the guy's second crime, potentially just the second on the record. Tracy went around telling anyone who would listen after these two crimes. This is a big conspiracy, guys. This is a big hoax. The hoax of the decade. It's not fake birds. It's not the fact that the earth is flatter than Stephanie's chest. No, the big conspiracy is that these big wigs in charge, they don't want you to know that they're all out to get me, a random 19-year-old from Iowa.
0: Yeah. Who? The government? Yeah. Just the government,
1: law enforcement, the DA's office, the governor everyone oh yeah he's that important there was this epic conspiracy to keep tracy in jail tracy claimed he never committed any of these crimes ever Okay? Even later, he was arrested for domestic violence against his girlfriend. He was so angered, enraged during a fight, he started punching her in the face. And mind you, this guy is over six feet tall, over 200 pounds of pure muscle. This is not a series of light taps. Tracy gave the girl two black eyes and scarring on her nose and eyes by the end of it. She couldn't see for days after the assault. Then three weeks later, he threatened to kill her when she kindly asked him to leave her apartment since... I don't know. You think she has no good reason? He was so shocked that she would want him to leave. He was genuinely shocked that she was breaking up with him over something like domestic violence. He laughed and he pulled out a gun. Mm -hmm. He put it up against her head and screamed, I'm going to fucking kill you. And for the next half hour, he continued torturing the woman, putting the handgun in her mouth, in her ear, trying to shove it up her nose each time screaming at her. I'm going to fucking kill you. And when he was done, he threw her on the ground and kept her hostage for 24 hours in her own apartment. And she was finally able to get away and call the police. And I guess Tracy didn't fear the conspiracy against him anymore because he had the audacity to go back and find her and scream at her. I told you to never fuck with me. I'm never going to jail. He was arrested briefly, but released before the court hearings. And Tracy decides to go on the run. He was spotted in New York, North Carolina, and finally caught living under a new name by the name of uh, Stuart Kessler. He's extradited back to Florida He spent a few years behind bars Arguably not enough for his crimes Especially because he was let out early By the pleading of his parents And I think this tells us all we need to know about his childhood The fact that his parents were like You kidnapped, held a woman hostage, beat her And threatened to take her life Because she was breaking up with you Please don't judge our kid He's a good kid, guys Please but judge
0: Is the girlfriend same as the bartender or is no. that someone else?
1: Someone else mm. Yeah the, the parents were like, please, this is a good kid. I mean, a full grown child, man. I mean, man, but like have mercy on his sweet face. He just needs some mental health help. So they let him out. And did his parents get him mental health help? No, they did not. So Tracy goes on to get married. He has a daughter. The mother of the child could not tolerate the abuse any longer. Now that she had a child she had to take care of and she fled with her daughter. Both of them were terrified of Tracy. That is a trend with all of Tracy's ex-girlfriends. They all say in the beginning, he's sweeter than honey. Oh my God, he's so charismatic. He almost has this addicting quality to him. You want to be around him more and more. You just can't get enough. He told people about his football career, his boxing career, his flourishing modeling career, He how his dad beat him so hard he lost a kidney how he was a hot commodity he straight up told people that his fists were registered lethal weapons look i don't even know he was dead ass though okay he wasn't even giggling he was not chuckling he was dead serious which i don't know how that works so you're telling me every time you go to tsa they're (laughs) searching for lethal weapons in your carry-on do you just like leave your hands behind do you have to tie them up do you have to put them through the little monitor machine where your suitcases go i don't understand but he was dead serious. He said they were registered lethal weapons. Let TEND Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's com slash sale. And book your free consult today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. all of it. The hands, the football career, the modeling, all lies. He never played football. He certainly never modeled for Armani. I guess the only thing that rang true was that later someone would die at his hands, but that's it. An ex-girlfriend said this about Tracy. For days, for weeks, he would be fine. Like more than fine. The dream boyfriend, loving, caring, loyal. And then out of nowhere, he would Maybe be eating dinner at the table, just digging into his white rice and boiled chicken. And for no reason, he would stand up and flip the table over. Just violent, out of the blue, screaming at the walls, punching the air. If I ever got scared and threatened to turn him into the police for domestic violence, he would get in my face and threaten to bury me in my backyard. Tracy's criminal record was littered with charges relating to abusing women, being violent against women, threatening, and even telling several girlfriends that he was going to kill them. At one point, he had a warrant out for his arrest because he had kidnapped one of his other girlfriends, allegedly assaulted her, refused to be arrested, barricaded himself in his house when the police came to get him, and the police had to tear gas the place and drag him out. Yeah, tear gas the place. Which, I mean, the difference in how some police treat others is astonishing like we've seen how police officers will take an innocent life for doing absolutely nothing and then you have this man fully resisting arrest kidnapping and raping women, and they're like let's just make him cry a little this was tracy's life to late 2000s where things would take an even darker turn i don't even know how that's possible so in the late 2000s tracy meets sandy Sandy Rozo, who was about 35 at the time and they were coworkers if you will. Sandy was a bartender at the Inferno Club in town and Tracy was the bouncer. Actually, she got him the job. So they had briefly known each other somehow before work and Sandy helped Tracy get the job as a bouncer. And once he starts working, they grew closer for a few reasons. Well, they worked together obviously, but now, you know, when you have a new coworker that comes in, everyone just kind of flocks to them. And they stayed around him Tracy had this effect That not only did co-workers Love to spend time with him But every night Customers would be coming To the club Greeting Tracy With nothing but these Big, big smiles and these warm hugs. He was truly a magnetic person. You could tell that people flocked him. Everywhere he went, there was like an entourage, a circle of people around him. It seemed like he knew everyone. If you went somewhere with Tracy, you would be stopped nonstop saying, Hello, hi, oh, nice to meet you. Oh, you're Tracy's friend. Oh, okay, cool. Everyone knew him. And everyone seemed to have a good impression of the guy. Tracy was good at laying it on thick when he wanted to or when he needed to. Besides, manipulative people really only show their ugly colors to the ones that are the closest to them. So that's kind of the situation with Tracy, Sandy. And
0: isn't Tracy the jo- Tracy's job is to kind of what like look out for?
1: Yeah the the, the bartenders, bartender the... the waitresses, yes. the coworkers. Yes, yes. To make sure everybody's safe and yeah, so you feel more love.
0: safe by by being around them, right? Yeah,
1: it's like when you have a security card at your job, you feel safe. You're like, wow, thank you for making sure I'm not in trouble. Like all the other coworkers, Sandy liked Tracy. Not like that. Uh, She just liked him. He was a very friendly person, that's all. She had no intention of dating him. She was so over relationships. This was very close to the point where she had gotten out of that nasty relationship with her soulmate. The one that got cold feet. Mm. Well, I guess it wasn't a nasty relationship, just a nasty breakup. So Sandy is not into Tracy, not into relationships. But they did hang out one-on-one and they were not dates, So they would work out and grab dinner. Now, these dinners are not watching dolphins swim across the Florida waters. These dinners are not candlelit steakhouse dinners. It's like you work out and you go grab Chick-fil-A. You work out, you go grab Chipotle. You work out, you go grab like a quick salad to eat. That was what these dinners were. Sometimes they would grab coffee. It was so strictly platonic, just friends that would work out and grab a bite. But Tracy was going around telling everyone and their mother that they were having sex, that Tracy and Sandy were having sex. Sandy was confused. They had never had sex and it was just weird. She's not looking for a relationship, but I guess the way that he was presenting this information to the coworkers made it seem like they were an item, made it seem like they were dating, that they were exclusive. He started getting jealous whenever she was talking to other men, which is a big part of her job. She's a bartender. She's brushed it off. I imagine it's hard to tell if he was joking. Mm, like, yeah. what's going on? Because he's like this very full of life jokester personality. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be in an awkward position where you're like, hey, you know, we're not actually dating. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, OK. Just it's awkward. She brushed it off. Then one day. Sandy's joking around with a customer and she walks around to the other side of the bar and she sat on his lap. So maybe it's not the most professional thing to do as a bartender, but Sandy didn't mean harm and the customer's having a great time. She's just living her life. Well, Tracy comes upstairs to where the bar is and he, quote, went nuts. He starts screaming, threatening everyone around. And Sandy was so embarrassed and confused. And she just got up in his face and said, what are you doing? You're not my boyfriend. I told you nonstop on numerous occasions. I'm not looking for a relationship. I don't want to be with you in that way. Look, I know it kind of sounds harsh to tell Tracy this in front of all the patrons at the bar, but his outburst was uncalled for, it was unacceptable, and this is not the first time that she had told him nicely, very nicely, that she was not interested in him like that. She's not looking for a relationship. Tracy did not take it well. One does not simply tell him no. He decided to retaliate and humiliate Sandy. He shouted at the guy whose lap she was on in front of everyone, her coworkers, her boss, the patrons of the bar. Do you know that I just fucked her in the parking lot? My cum is probably running down her leg right now. That was a lie. But very soon after that, Sandy was having sex with Tracy, but none of it would ever be consensual. He started pressuring her into having sex. At first, Tracy did not outright threaten bodily harm, but it was implied. The way that he spoke, the way that he looked at her, he wasn't giving her the chance to say no. So this really bothers me. Um, A lot of sexual assault cases are overlooked or the victim gets victim blamed because they don't outright say no. But anyone with social context, social cues, emotional IQ over the age of, I don't know, four years old would know that this woman or this victim was doing everything that indicated no. And these sick, nasty people are looking for some sort of loophole to exploit. And they know that they don't want to have sex. You know. I mean, it was clear to everyone, including Tracy, that Sandy was petrified of saying no. But he didn't care. She felt trapped. She had gotten in this job. She's constantly running into him, constantly around him. And to say no, I mean, imagine the world of trouble and stress that would have brought on her. Tracy knew where Sandy lived. It felt like there was no escape. Sandy was miserable. She hated it. And then out of nowhere, for a few months, Tracy just kind of disappeared. I mean, he was at work still, but he just backed off a little bit. He was cooling down. She prayed. She hoped. Maybe he had lost interest. Maybe he's moving on now. Everything became platonic again. Everything went back to normal. Where they were just friends. There was no undercurrent of like, I feel like he's pressuring me to do things I don't want to do. All he did was ask for rides to and from work every now and then if they were working the same shift. She did try to avoid it, but how many excuses can you give, especially since Tracy's place seemed like it was on the way to work? So anyway, for a while during the rides, Tracy's not even flirting with her, not making any inappropriate comments, and Sandy believed maybe he finally got the message. Well, she was wrong. New Year's Eve rolls around. Sandy picked up Tracy from his apartment to drive to work. It was going to be a busy, busy night. New Year's Eve at a club. When they park behind the club, Tracy's like, hey, thanks for the ride. Can you give me a ride back home? Yeah, no problem. I mean, neither of us are going to be out of our shifts until the bar closes. So yeah, I'll meet up with you at the end of the night. Um, maybe meet me downstairs. It's a hectic night. Drinks were poured. They were spilled. People are letting loose for the last night of the year. Sandy's shift ran later than it should have. By the time that most people were out of the club, a lot of the co-workers were out, Sandy had a ton of customers whose tabs weren't even closed yet. So she's chasing after them, making them pay, and then she has to cash the waitresses up for their tips. It was a lot. When she was finally done, the bar was practically deserted. The patrons were gone. They left to party somewhere else. The workers are gone, throwing themselves into bed after the most hectic shift of the year and Sandy walks downstairs. The place is oddly quiet and she's looking around for Tracy. He mainly works downstairs because he's the bouncer. That's where the front door is. So he should be down there. But she didn't see him. She looked. No sign of him. Okay, maybe he left. I mean, because she did take a lot longer than all the other co-workers Okay, maybe he got a ride from someone else. I mean, he knows so many people, even just regular patrons at the bar. He knows all of them.
0: Is there anybody else left
1: or? Very few, okay. but nobody saw Tracy. Okay. So Sandy did spend some time looking for him, but she herself was exhausted. She was dead tired. I mean, she had a headache. She decided that she waited long enough and went home. It was four in the morning when she got home. At 6 in the morning, she's rudely woken up by her phone just going crazy. She's barely conscious. She's squinting at the phone on the nightstand. She's like, yeah, no. Okay, whoever wants to talk to me, they're going to have to wait till after my morning coffee because I can't even talk right now. She falls back asleep. January 1st, 2002, she wakes up and her whole morning is ruined. She's going through the missed calls and she was left very, very explicit threatening voicemails From Tracy, accusing her of, quote, leaving him hanging at the bar without a ride. He screamed at Sandy, I'm going to kill you. You're probably going to need to start dating a plastic surgeon because by the time that I'm done with your face, you're going to need one. Sandy was blown away by the outburst. I mean, she had only heard about behavior like this. She had never witnessed it by an actual adult firsthand. She knew that Tracy had a temper, but Jesus, threatening to kill her and rearrange her face for what? Not giving him a ride home when he was nowhere to be found? It's not like she ditched him. She briefly contemplating alerting the police of the threatening calls, but in the same vein of things, the drama, the commotion, the stress that it would cause at work, it's not even like the police would arrest him. What if everyone thought that she was overreacting? Also, love, love that women feel like they're overreacting to literal threats against their lives. Meanwhile, this guy out here is overreacting to not getting a ride home. Sandy did not report the voicemails. Instead, she vowed to keep a distance from Tracy moving forward. And I think the worst part of this story, the part of the story that gets me so riled up, is that this is the reality of so many people's lives. They're too scared to say anything and they want to keep the peace at work because they need work. They have to pay the rent, they have to pay the bills. And it just, <sighs> yeah. Later that month, Tracy sheepishly comes upstairs to the bar and he's like, Can I talk? Sandy's like, Okay, what's going on? I know last month, uh, I just, look, I, I, I don't know. I, I snapped. Can I come over tonight? I, I just have something for your birthday I want to give you. I just want to show you how sorry I am. Oh. Sandy felt bad. She learned her lesson. She did not want to get close to this guy, but she was a strong believer in second chances. So Tracy shows up to Sandy's house later that week and gives her a card. Later, at Tracy's request and Tracy's urging, the two would meet up at a restaurant to grab dinner. Again, nothing romantic. It's not like a fancy little steak dinner. And shit hit the fan. While the two sat down to eat their meal, Sandy's friend and Sandy's friend's boyfriend, they walk into the restaurant and they make eye contact with Sandy. Instantly, her friend is pissed. Because mm-hmm. Sandy had told her about the, the threatening voicemails. Mm. And so her friend is like, why would you be out to eat dinner with this guy? Like, I know it's not a date, but just stay away from him. Blah, blah, blah. She's getting upset. And she was even giving Tracy a word of her mind. She's like, you are a shitty person. Like, fuck you. And he exploded in the middle of the restaurant. Tracy got up in their faces and told them to mind their own damn business. And he starts threatening them. He had to be escorted out of the restaurant and the cops were called. Sandy is starting to pull back from Tracy again. I mean, she really thought that this second chance was him trying to change. Clearly, that's not the case. A few days after the restaurant fiasco, Tracy shows up at Sandy's place once again, and he knocks at the door with the saddest puppy dog eyes he could do, but she's not buying it. She opens the front door a tiny little crack, and she sighed. I'm very angry with you, Tracy. No, you can't come in. I'm not going to speak to you. Your actions were absurd. I want you to leave. Tracy bit his tongue, turned around, and left. For a while, things seemed to slowly revert back to normal. Sandy was not getting close to him as friends ever again. But she would give him the occasional ride to and from work, but that was it. Then, February of 2002, Sandy was transferred to the bar downstairs at the club. Meaning she was going to be seeing Tracy a lot more. They worked on the same floor now. And every night during their shifts together, Tracy would be the most charismatic, caring, apologetic person that ever existed. He would do these massive favors for Sandy. He even asked if he could follow Sandy to church. So side note, Sandy was a Catholic at heart. And this was him showing her, look, I'm trying to change. Something's wrong with me and I know it. Tracy was the type of person that could make you forget all of his past transgressions. The type that almost made you feel crazy. I mean, obviously he's such a good person. Was I overreacting earlier? How could I have gotten mad at someone like this? Did I just misunderstand the situation completely? You start questioning yourself. I feel Sandy so strongly on this one because I forgive people so easily to the point of getting hurt very quickly again. My mom says both of us are like goldfish. The minute that a painful time is replaced by laughter, I'm like, hey, I think you're a good person. I overreacted. Yeah, that's kind of what was happening. And Tracy was incredibly manipulative. He also knew that Sandy was this kind soul. She was the type of person that would help you when you most needed it. And he was going to use that against her. So they would go back to working out together. Maybe he would say something like, hey, I just need a friend to work out with. I haven't been feeling great. She would go work out. They might grab Chipotle after. And by the end of the month, Tracy reminded Sandy why she was staying away from him in the first place. He started begging for sex, almost like some weird adolescent boy going through puberty, like very whiny. He would say things like, Come on, Sandy, it's been so long, please. What? One night in her apartment after they were, um, their like workout, he said, I'm gonna have sex with you one way or another. And Sandy was so shocked she stared at him and he continued whining. You're like a tease. You enjoy walking around and making men sexually excited. You need to pay for the way you act. Sandy lost it. She started crying. She was confused and terrified and Tracy saw the opportunity and he jumped on it. He started berating her for, quote, shaking her ass in front of him every single day and not putting out. He said that she was taking advantage of him because he, she was using him for friendship and for free dinners and he got nothing out of it but sexual frustration. Sandy said that she felt so bad about herself that she gave in. Again, I don't want to hear it. There are bizarre people out there that will argue that this isn't rape because she didn't say no. But come on, anyone, again, with a five-year-old social cue and social IQ is going to know that she was scared, confused, not okay with this situation. She was manipulated into doing something that she clearly, clearly did not want to do. Like, this is disgusting behavior. If I knew any guy in my life that pulled this shit with anyone else, they would be out of my life so quick. Now, if you go to the police with this, they'll be like, well, it wasn't rape." He was emotionally manipulating her with this undercurrent of physical threats in the background. Um, he kept telling her that she would have to, quote, pay for the way she acted. So they had sex. She was raped and Sandy was disgusted with herself. She put her foot down and she didn't want to keep feeling this way. This was the last time that she wanted to see Tracy. She was going to cut him out of her life. That's what she decided. But she couldn't do it cold turkey because they work together and he has these, he has a short fuse, his anger issues. She had to do it slowly so he didn't get pissed. She was scared of how he would react if she had given him a firm no. The threatening voicemails were replaying in the back of her mind and even more terrifying, but randomly Tracy would bring up Sandy's daughter, almost as a threat. Sandy tries to minimize the interactions that they had, but Tracy was catching on. February 22nd of 2002, he shows up at her apartment. He asked if he could get a ride to work. Sandy sighed and agreed. They're about to leave. Tracy has to change, um, goes into the bathroom and they get in the car. And, you know, she's thinking, maybe this is a sign. Maybe this is a sign for me to talk to him about how it's not going to work out. Our friendship is not headed in the right direction. I don't think we should spend time together. It didn't work out the way she thought. They argued the whole time in the car, on the way to work, the whole time during work and on the way back to Sandy's house so she could drop him off at his car, which is parked in front of her house. They were still arguing. They got home at around four in the morning and Sandy expected Tracy to throw some angry words around and then slam his car door shut and zoom off in anger. But instead, Tracy pushed himself into her house behind her and started screaming at her while punching the air. I mean, he was out of control. She tried to tell him nicely, but firmly, I cannot handle your aggressive behavior, Tracy, please. Tracy muttered something about her being his girlfriend and how she can't do this to him. And she was shocked. She said, what? I've told you so many times. I don't want to be your girlfriend. I don't want a boyfriend. It's not even you. I just don't want any type of relationship. Tracy's demeanor changed. He snapped. He started pacing, breathing in through his nose and out through the mouth very loudly. Just pacing around the living room. Imagine how terrifying that is. Sandy was getting nervous. He looked like he was about to explode. She tried to kindly but firmly voice her feelings. I I want you to leave. She wanted him out ASAP. Like who knows what's going to happen if he snaps. He didn't respond. Tracy, I need you to leave right now. No response. Tracy, please. I feel like you're smothering me. I just need some space. You're being a little aggressive right now. He refused to leave. Instead, he stood there arguing and screaming at her until 830 in the morning. She kept trying to get him to leave, but he refused. Sandy couldn't leave either. She said, I couldn't have left. He was getting very angry, blocking me from leaving. He was in my face. He wouldn't even let me step to the right without being in front of me. Sandy was so tired. She suggested, please, I just need to lay down and get some rest. Can I at least do that? Maybe you can lay down too. She said, I thought after we both rested, maybe afterwards we could both talk about it again and be able to agree on something. Maybe with clearer minds after we got some sleep. So she laid down to go to sleep. It's nearly nine in the morning at this point. And Tracy mentions, no sleep. I want to have sex. Sandy was so shocked. I mean, in no way did she want to have sex with anyone right now, especially him. But he was starting to scare her. Just this look in his eyes. She was terrified, emotionally exhausted. She did not consent and it happened. She hoped maybe that's what he wanted all along and he would leave after. She said, I was in survival mode. And side note, not once did they ever have sex consensually, which doesn't matter anyway. But um, she said, I was in survival mode. I was in fear of even moving. After the assault, Sandy dozed off, just exhausted, and woke up at 1.30 p.m. to bumps, like something thumping against her bed. She forced her eyes open, and there was Tracy standing over her bed, bald head turning red. And he's just saying, I feel fucking hate you i hate you and he's repeating this while kicking the bed he's repeating i fucking hate you what is going on what are you talking about i fucking hate you this is my fucking day i hate you this is the way things are gonna be sandy said he was almost whining as he's saying this almost like a child that's throwing a tantrum his whole face was red his eyes were bulging out of his skull and she tried to calm him down tracy please calm down He jumped onto the bed, straddling her face. So he put his large muscular knees on both sides of her head near her ears and started squeezing her head while screaming, I fucking hate you. This is my motherfucking day. You're going to show me respect. Sandy started crying. She felt like she was going to die. She felt like her head was exploding. And Tracy started maniacally laughing at her pain. And he screamed, you know what? You're going to sign your fucking car over to me. Yeah, your car. I have spent approximately $250 on you going out to dinner and other things. And I don't pay anybody's bills. I want some money out of you, bitch. He kept screaming and screaming. You're going to sign your fucking car over to me. And then sign a false statement and report to the insurance company that your car was stolen. Sandy wasn't even listening. Her head felt like it was going to pop, and she said no. No, as in like, no, 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 don't do this to me. No, you're hurting me. Not necessarily. No, my car. But Tracy didn't realize, and he punched Sandy in the face. He repeatedly punched her until blood dripped from her eyes. Sandy finally said, okay, okay. She was crying uncontrollably. He let her go and he started pacing the room, going off on this unhinged rant about getting respect. The scary part is, during these rants about respect, he would randomly change his demeanor and whisper angry messages to himself. Almost like, God, you're really ruining this. She wants you out of her house. You're fucking things up. You're not doing the right thing. It's terrifying to watch. At one point, he got up and picked up Sandy by the arms and dragged her around like a doll and kept punching her in the face. He asked her, Do you know what I did while you were sleeping? I obtained all your personal information. I gave it to my friend. Let's see. I have your cell phone bill, your land phone bill, your daughter's number, also your social security number, your daughter's social security number, your VIN number to the car, your credit card and bank numbers, your driver's license. I have everything. Sandy was shocked. She didn't care that he could take all the money in her accounts. She didn't care about her car. Her daughter... Tracy saw the realization seep into Sandy and he said, "This this is right. This right here is going to keep you within my reach for the rest of our lives." Sandy started sobbing. He threatened that if she were to go to the cops, he also knew 3 insert racial slur that were waiting to gang rape her until she begged them for death. While Sandy sobbed and her whole body shook, Tracy laughed like this maniacal laughter at her and then he grabbed her by the hair violently and he kissed her on the lips to the point of bruising her face and he screamed, do you want to fuck? Sandy sobbed and she begged, no, please, no. But he tore off her shirt, ripped her pants off, ripped her bed sheets, and used them to tie her up and he started punching her in the face while he raped her aggressively and harshly. Sandy screamed and she cried, but he wouldn't stop and when he was done He untied her and she curled up in this ball and she was crying She had no idea what to do next or what was coming next If he was gonna kill her hold her hostage for god knows how long. I mean who knew Around 8:30 p.m That night sandy asked to call work and she said, please I need to tell them that I can't come in for my shift I never don't show up like it's gonna be weird. He said no i'll call he called work and told them that both of them had been in a really, really bad car accident on their way to work and they wouldn't be able to make it. I guess that he was trying to find a reason for all of her injuries and he seemed rather content with himself until he wasn't. Later that night, yeah, he's still there. So they woke up at 1.30 p.m. and this is like later at night. He started staring at her face. And he saw that the bruises were settling in now. And she had two black eyes, red marks and bruising all over her face and body. Her lips, mouth, chest. There was um, dried blood around there. She looked like she had been in a boxing match and lost. And Sandy couldn't stop sobbing. Tracy's mood suddenly switched from angry to remorseful He made sandy lay down on the couch He dug out ice packs from the freezer and put them all over sandy's face And he just sat next to her weeping like a child and he just kept saying what have I done? What have I done? I'm so sorry for what i've done. I want to kill myself I think that he expected sandy to beg him not to but she wasn't gonna stop him Mainly because she herself was so exhausted at this point She didn't even know if she was gonna make it out alive. She just laid there Tracy had not slept the entire time. Sandy was in and out of sleep, and when she would wake up, he would be there cursing at himself, weeping. And then it turned into the next day. And she knew she had to go to work that next day, and she said, I can't cancel another weekend shift. That was a Friday night I canceled. If I cancel a Saturday night, I'm gonna get fired, please. Tracy agreed that they would both go to work, but first he needed to make sure that their story made sense. He got up, went to the bathroom, took one of Sandy's razors, and with his teeth, he bit off a blade of the razor and took one of her toothbrushes, attached the razor blade with duct tape. He came out and proudly talked about how he learned how to make a shank in prison. There's a drawer full of kitchen knives right there. I don't know why he had to make a shank. And he started threatening to slit his own throat. He held the shank up to his throat, asking Sandy to forgive him. And she said, yeah, yeah, of course I forgive you. Sandy just wanted to survive, just pacify him. She had no idea when his anger towards himself was going to switch and turn to her. I need to know that you forgive me, Sandy. I do. I do. Of course. He said it over and over again, and Sandy finally took the ice pack off her eyes. She could barely open her eyes at this point, And she saw cuts all over Tracy's neck and blood running down his neck, chest, and down into his pants. He, he even rubbed the blood all over his bald head. Like, he's painting himself in blood, like war paint. It was a nightmare scene. He also smeared blood all over her bathroom mirror. Sandy begged him, please let me help you. And he said, no. If you call for medical help, I'm going to be involuntarily admitted to the hospital. Sandy believed Tracy was going to die at this point. There was so much blood. She was so stressed that he was going to die. She helped clean him up. He refused medical help. She cleaned herself up. And Sandy just kept saying, I don't know what to do. I truly believed that he was going to die. After they were both cleaned up, they walked into work. Tracy had gauze and medical tape around his neck and Sandy was bruised everywhere. On the way to work, Tracy reminded Sandy how easily he could just hop a few states over and pay a visit to her little daughter if need be. When they got to the bar, Sandy sat there listening to Tracy tell the story of their car accident. And at the end, he looked over at her and winked. Sandy knew that this was not the place she could get help. There were people everywhere, most of them drunk. None of the co-workers would believe her, and Tracy was right there breathing down her throat. When the shift ended, Tracy drove them back to Sandy's, and now it was 6 a.m. in the morning. Sandy told Tracy that she had to go to Pittsburgh to meet her mom. She would have to be at the airport by 7 a.m. This was pre planned. Her mom would be suspicious if she didn't show up. Tracy listened, sat in silence while Sandy held her breath before he said, Fine, but remember what I told you. He let Sandy go back into her apartment to pack. She rushed in, locked the door behind her. I mean, all she could see was blood. Her anxiety was peaking. She felt like she was having a panic attack. And the only thing that she could focus on was cleaning all the blood. In theory, it's a bad idea because it's evidence. But she couldn't be here anymore with all of this blood. She cleaned...
0: All the blood from the night before, yeah. right? Okay. She
1: cleaned and cleaned and cleaned until the apartment was spotless. And then she called her best friend in a panic. Amber lived in Sarasota. It's a couple hours away from Tampa. They're super close. They talk every day. And Sandy told her everything. Tracy took me hostage. He beat me. I'm scared for my life. He has all our information. My daughter, my daughter. And the two women agreed to meet halfway between Tampa and Sarasota. The whole drive, Sandy was terrified that Tracy was following her and knew that she wasn't going to the airport.
0: Oh, so she's actually not going to the airport. No. Ah, I see.
1: She did have that flight scheduled and it was planned. And that's uh-huh. the only reason that Tracy believed her because she yeah. did have that blackout period at work.
0: Oh, but she's not going. She changed her plan yeah. now. Okay. She
1: has no idea what to even do. The last thing she wants to do is go through a TSA line and sit on a plane with no service. And she probably doesn't want to stress out her mom, honestly. Mm. When they met up, Amber drove them to her house where her attorney fiancé heard the whole story and advised Sandy to go to the police. And that's when the plan to get justice became derailed by a sick, evil human being. Tracy was allowed to be a free man while he waited for the court hearings, which is just wild to me. He entered in a few relationships and ultimately ended up marrying Ashley, which side note, Tracy did not stop there. He tried to bribe Sandy to drop the charges. Why he thought that this was about money is bizarre to me. But all of his girlfriends that he had after his kidnapping and rape of Sandy, he convinced them that Sandy was this evil woman that wanted him to die. He called her the quote, the bitch of my life. He insinuated that he wouldn't reciprocate her obsession with him. And that's why she was using all these sexual allegations to get him in trouble and no one was going to believe him because he's the man the evidence points otherwise typically he said she said he wins for some reason Not a good argument. Now, Tracy constantly referred to Sandy as the bitch, the bitch. Most of his girlfriends, even on their own free will, stalked Sandy online and even called her workplace to ask if she was working, and then they would hang up. Of course, that scared and terrorized Sandy. She switched jobs multiple times. Tracy would even ask his girlfriends to stalk Sandy's house, and they would. Essentially, he manipulated them into stalking Sandy. One girlfriend would give a chilling statement to the police later, which was, If I didn't catch Tracy cheating on me, you would be coming to my house to arrest me for the murder of Sandy Roseau. That shows how good of a manipulator he was with women. So many of them believed that Sandy was crazy and he was an innocent man. So during his relationship with Ashley... He was the king of manipulation. Remember how um, after their first date, he was like, hey, would your mom mind if you stop by my apartment for a little while? The way he asked is as if he was respectful, as if he was someone that cared about your parents and the harmony of your home. But no, he asked knowing that now she would want to go to his apartment, not even for him, but to prove herself as an adult, mm, mm. to prove that she can make her own decisions.
0: Wow, that's so calculated. Yeah.
1: During their relationship, he lied nonstop about, you know, the football, the boxing, the kidney, all of that. He love-bombed her from the beginning, and for Ashley, it was all that she needed. She finally felt like she had a family, a chosen family, one that would love her forever. She was willing to do anything for Tracy. She was obsessed. She ended up dropping out of college so that she could spend every single waking moment with Tracy. She even quit her job and started working at the gym so that she could be closer to Tracy, and for a few months in the beginning, it was bliss. It was happiness, love, devotion, loyalty. And then the drug pushing came. Ashley, just try a little bit of weed. It'll help you relax. I love you, babe. Everyone's doing ecstasy. Seriously, it's not even like considered a real drug. Then came the orgies. Ashley was in love with Tracy and she wanted to be with him. But he had a thing for foam party orgies, which is literally a mouthful. Okay. Okay. A foam party, I don't know if you guys remember They were really big back in the day These clubs would fill up their entire club with foam And you would go in your bikini or your bathing suit Which is just insane I mean, I can see why it's not as popular Just think about the glaringly obvious Potential accidents, fatalities, insurance issues Drunk people, slippery foam bikinis That is like a lawsuit heaven
0: I went there for my birthday I (laughs) slipped I got up with bleeding nose
1: Oh my gosh (laughs) Yeah Please don't go. This is your lesson. No phone parties. Now, Tracy's phone parties were different because it wasn't just about getting drunk and slipping around and having fun. They were full-blown orgies. Ashley had had threesomes before, but she was scared of the idea of a full-blown orgy. Tracy somehow managed to make the idea romantic. It was something that she was doing for her soulmate, the love of her life. By March 2003, despite all these red flags, Ashley moved in with Tracy and his roommate, Side note, the roommate, by all accounts, is not even a part of the story. He wasn't even close with Tracy. His name just happens to be on the lease. The lovebirds move in together, and they're no longer that much in love. At least Tracy isn't. Ashley is, but she's still more stressed than anything. Tracy is becoming incredibly possessive. And Tracy had this upcoming sexual assault kidnapping trial hearing. Yeah, coming up. He was looking at 10 years in prison if convicted. Ashley, like Tracy's previous girlfriends, could not believe it. She refused to believe that her soulmate could do something as heinous as what the charges said he did. And with a little bit of sweet talking from Tracy, Ashley believed that Sandy was a full-blown liar. For what reason? Tracy never theorized. He just swore up and down that he was innocent. I mean, look, Ashley, you gotta believe me. The only time that I've ever been to prison was like for small minor infractions like weed. Again, another lie. I was in there for like a few days and it was horrible. I can never go back to jail. I swear to you, I can never go back to prison, Ashley. Do you hear me? And Sandy's trying to send me because she's evil. He also mentioned that the cops in the Tampa Bay area had it out for him for reasons undisclosed. And Sandy knew that. So if they went to court, he would never win, even though he was innocent. Ashley sat there listening to him sob, fuming, and Sandy was trying to see him suffer. That's what she got out of this. Maybe Sandy decided that if she can't have him, nobody can. Ashley paced the room. I mean, what kind of woman would lie about things like this? Tracy was so kind and sweet and he wouldn't even hurt a fly. Which side note, I hate that saying because I've met a lot of incredibly nice, amazing, compassionate people and most of them kill flies and cockroaches. Maybe not like a ladybug or a spider or like a bee, but a fly? I don't know. Anyway, Ashley was fuming. She decided that she had to help her man. Sandy was not only ruining Tracy's future with her deplorable eyes, but she was also ruining Ashley's future because Tracy was her future. That's, that's all she had. So she drove down to the bar that Sandy was working as a bartender, the green iguana, and weirdly, she dragged Tracy with her. They burst through the door of the green iguana. Ashley came in first and Ashley lost it. She exploded screaming at Sandy. I can't believe you're really going to do this. Sandy had never seen Ashley before in her entire life. She's so confused. She has no idea who this woman is. She's at work. She's never seen this girl before. And she's yelling at her with no context. But the door burst open yet again. And in comes Tracy. Sandy froze. She was paralyzed in fear. She ran through the door and rushed into the kitchen. And her colleagues helped calm her down. She was having like a full-blown panic attack. The couple were gone by the time that she came back to the floor. But the message remained loud and clear. Drop the assault charges or else. Sandy refused. She had to make sure that it didn't happen to any other woman. Ashley had no idea that it was happening to her, I guess. And she was not in the space where she would ever listen to anyone to try and tell her. Even if she was, I don't think she would listen. So here's the part that gets tricky. I do think that the horrible person here ultimately is Tracy. He's the instigator, the rapist, the perpetrator, the aggressor, the kidnapper. But I do think that Ashley was manipulated. She was love-bombed, abused in this horrible, toxic relationship. She was 20 at the time. But, um... Okay, he was controlling. He told her when to sleep, how to dress, when to even use the restroom. He controlled every aspect of her life, and he would punish her when she didn't comply. One time, because she didn't do as she was told, he locked her overnight in the gym that they worked at, alone in the massive, terrifying gym, overnight. And when Tracy got mad, everyone knew he was terrifying. His veins would start bulging. Sweat would gather on the top of his bald head. His eyes looked like they were going to pop out of their sockets. He looked unhinged and terrifying, which is not great when someone is 6 feet 2 and 220 pounds of muscle. Now, I'm not trying to make it seem like it was easy for Ashley to say no. I'm not trying to make it seem like it was easy for her to have her own voice in this type of toxic relationship, but I think it would be unfair to Sandy if I just said Ashley too was a victim of Tracy. Because there are a lot more stories of countless women who are in toxic, abusive relationships and none of them are willing to take another's life. They themselves are the victims. They know what it feels like. They would refuse to victimize another woman. So I do think while Ashley is a victim to a degree, she definitely is not a good person, okay? Like, she's not a great person at all. And I'm going to get into why. She's a homophobe and a killer, so really not a great person. It's hard to say without Tracy, she would have turned out a great person. I don't think that she would have killed anyone, but she's just not a good person. I don't know what to say. Anyway, Ashley and Tracy started riling each other up. And Tracy just flat out asked, Don't you have an ex-boyfriend whose dad has guns? Uh, yeah. Go get one of them. What? No, I don't feel comfortable asking him for a gun. They went back and forth arguing and Tracy was pissed. He said, you're my future wife. How am I supposed to build a future with you if you won't even look after me? I would do this for you if you were in those shoes. Ashley decided that she would get Tracy a gun, probably not from her ex's dad, but her mom's new fiance had a rifle that they kept in the house. So she let herself in and got the rifle. Things were definitely heating up. Okay, Ashley claimed that she was under the impression that they were just going to scare Sandy. I don't know if I believe this. Anyway, Tracy is bubbling with anticipation as she hands over the rifle and the two of them decide she's going to go to a shooting range and fire this gun nonstop until she's familiarized herself with it by herself. Ashley was petrified. She had never fired a weapon in her entire life, but she found herself alone at a shooting range. He called her and said, you fire that weapon as many times as you need. You want to get acquainted with it. Try to get control over the shock. It's going to kick you in the shoulder and you need to try to keep your aim steady and see if the scope is accurate.
0: Does she know what she's trying to do here?
1: See, that's what's crazy. She said she didn't realize it at the moment. But how do you not realize that your future husband, your fiance is trying to turn you into a killer? A few days after the shooting range, Tracy sent Ashley to the parking lot of the Green Iguana alone. And this would be Ashley's first attempt at taking Sandy Rose's life. It did not go as planned. She sat in the car, May 31st, 2003, Florida heat seeping through her car, humid, suffocating. Ashley sat on the phone with Tracy and he's going through the checklist. Big shoes, big sweatpants, sweatshirt, the gloves, you know, no AC, no AC at all. He kept reminding her why because I don't want someone to see you the sound of the AC is going to attract attention Stop and check to see if anyone is eyeing you or if, if anyone is looking at you suspiciously Keep your windows up at all times. Keep a low profile Yeah, because a 20 year old doing blackface in her volkswagen beetle in the parking lot wearing an oversized hoodie in the sweltering July heat of florida is as low profile as it gets He even had her get out of the car at one point and walk to Sandy's car and tell him exactly how many steps it took, which was about 70 steps. He pondered out loud over the phone. Is that too far, you think? You have to make sure that the bullet hits her. I think it's good. Okay, well, make sure you put the rifle outside the window, but cover the barrel and fire from inside the car. So Ashley straight up had the rifle going through a pair of jeans and one leg has the rifle in it. And the part where your ankle comes out of, the barrel of the rifle is coming out. And when she sees Sandy, she's going to open the window and pull out a pair of jeans, I guess, and aim. All she had to do was wait for Sandy. When Ashley finally spotted Sandy, she straightened up in her seat, put the barrel of the rifle out the small opening of the window. She squinted. She saw Sandy walking towards her BMW. She focused and she closed both her eyes and fired. A deafening boom shot out through the parking lot and Sandy turned eyes wide, Ashley ducked in time, and Sandy couldn't make out anything out of the ordinary. The bullet didn't hit anything near Sandy that shattered. There was no glass. There was nothing that happened, really. She thought it was weird, got in her car, rushed out of the parking lot. Ashley was panicked. She could hear Tracy in the back of her mind berating her for being so dumb. She tried to fire again, but the clip jammed, and at this point, it was too late. Sandy was gone. And that's when she looked over, and the passenger side side mirror was blown off. What? So she put the rifle out the passenger side window and blew off her side mirror. She braced herself for the hard part. Murder was not the hard part, apparently. She called Tracy and let him know, don't be mad. Please don't be mad. What the fuck? Get your ass back here right now. Wait, no, get rid of everything and meet me at the mall. So Ashley had brought this empty book bag. She stuffed all the items she had used in this attempted murder, the jeans, the disguise, the sweatpants, the gloves, the shoes, and the gun, and parts of her side view mirror that she could find on the ground. She put them in the backpack, drove out of town, found a wooded area, tossed the gun in a bush, and later tossed the rest of the backpack in a dumpster. She shook the whole way to the mall to meet Tracy and in the Sears department store She would get a lecture from the righteous Tracy. He immediately started patting her down What are you doing? Tracy was paranoid that during the time that it took her to get here She had already gone to the police station agreed to work with them, and was wearing a wire. What are you doing? Have you been talking to the police? Huh, bitch? Huh? No, Trace, of course not. No Have you been telling on me, bitch? He was up in her face at this point and she was upset. She couldn't understand because most of the time that she was there committing this attempted murder, he was on the phone with her. I mean, it hurt her to know that he didn't trust her. She was out here trying to murder someone for him and he didn't even trust her. When you shot the gun, did the did the bullet, the, the casing go inside the car or outside? I don't know. They searched her car for a shell casing. It wasn't there, which means it must be in the parking lot of the Green Iguana. And if anybody saw the Volkswagen Beetle Park there, they would connect it to the bullet. Tracy was starting to get livid. He was pissed. Ashley suggested, Calm down. It's okay, babe. Why don't we make the car look like it was stolen? Her prized possession. Okay, fine. Not a bad idea. We burn it. So just like that, Ashley would light her prized possession on fire. Before meeting Tracy, her car was her life. She was so proud of her car. It was her baby. Later, it would seem that Ashley was really... Really, really the most regretful about setting her car on fire. She's not a good person. They burned her car in an abandoned parking lot in Brandon, Florida. A few days later, they secured another gun. A pistol, a semi-automatic pistol. Small, powerful, handy, easy to fire. This gun was just given to Ashley. So she complained to her mom's fiance that she was being stalked. And the man just handed over one of his guns for protection. Illegal, illegal, irresponsible, very dangerous. She told him that she had never even handled a weapon before. And he's like, here, take this lethal weapon. After getting another gun, Tracy personally took Ashley to the gun range and he wanted to make sure that she wasn't going to fuck it up again. So they practiced until Tracy decided that she was ready. And just two days before Sandy was murdered, the two got married. I know. It seems like an odd time to get married. Murder doesn't seem that romantic. You're not like, oh, that reminds me. I got to get married. Wood speculated that Tracy wanted to be Ashley's lawfully wedded husband because that way she couldn't testify against him. Now, there is a misconception about this. You can't be forced to testify against your spouse, but -hmm. you can willingly testify against your spouse. They would both refute this idea, and they said, Are you kidding? That's not romantic at all. We're super romantic. That's not why we got married. Tracy claimed that he asked her to marry him in exchange for buying her breast implants, and she said yes. Ah, yeah. Can you think of a more symbolic, sentimental beginning to a marital union? July 5th rolls around and now it's time. Ashley drives back to the parking lot of the Green Iguana Bar and Grill and waited for Sandy to get off her shift. She's fully doing blackface. I mean, the implication of what she's doing out of this world. Crazy. She gets there before Sandy even gets there for her 2 p.m. shift. It's going to be a very long wait. She's going to sit there for, what, eight, nearly nine hours in a hot boxed car in the middle of Florida in July wearing a big hoodie drenched in sweat and black makeup. After some time, Ashley fell asleep and she dozed off. And for eight and a half hours, she's in and out of naps, just staring out the window, relaxing. Like, How do you sit there for that long and not freak yourself out to the idea of what you're about to do? Meanwhile, Sandy's in there working hard, completely oblivious to the fact that her days were numbered. Her killer was waiting for her outside in the parking lot. When Sandy got out, she quickly made her way to her BMW, parked on the other side of the parking lot. But by the time that Ashley spotted her, she woke up from her nap, got her bearings. Sandy was already in the car and pulling out. Ashley cursed, slammed on the gas, and scurred out of the parking lot. She tailed Sandy's BMW. She didn't have to stay that close, though, because she knew where Sandy lived already. Her adrenaline filled the car ride. It felt more like a car chase, probably. Ashley called Tracy and he blew up on her and he screamed through the phone, get out at the stoplight and just shoot her. Ashley refused and said that, no, 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 it'll be easy. I'm just going to follow her home, ambush her in the garage. It'll be over in a few minutes, Tracy. I'll call you when it's done. Okay, well, grab her pocketbook, make it look like a robbery and don't let her shut off her car and make sure you look into her eyes while you're doing it. So he wanted her to look into Sandy's eyes because Tracy argued that dead people have a hollow look in their eyes. He said, aim at her head and organs until her eyes are glazed over. Look her in the eye. You have to make sure she's dead. Sandy got home at around 11 p.m. And the neighborhood is quiet and dark. And it's it's a townhouse neighborhood. It's a very nice area. Most residents were families. It was very peaceful. It was supposed to stay that way. Sandy pulled up to her garage, parked the car. She didn't hear Ashley's beetle pull up in front of her house. It wasn't in the driveway, just in front of the house. Ashley shut off her car and started sneaking up on Sandy. Sandy turned off her car, turned off the music, and started gathering her things. Her routine was always the same. She would park her car, gather her things, get out, go to the garage door that led into the house where there's a button that you close to close the garage. Then you enter the house. It's a routine that most of us are familiar with, which, side note, were you guys taught to close the garage door first before getting out of the car or close it after you get out of the car and before you go into the house?
0: I mean, it seems like it should be, you should turn off the car, close garage door and then get out of the car, right?
1: Yeah, but then some people will say that as you're closing the garage door, Mm -hmm. someone could sneak in and now you're trapped in a very confined space with someone. So I I don't think that there's a right answer because when there's evil people, they'll always find a way. But I find that usually people have a strict routine that they stick to. Yeah. Yeah, And most of it is safety reasons, you know? So Sandy was the type that closed it after she got out. And Ashley knew that she didn't have much time to act. She had to be fast. While Sandy was gathering her pocketbook and work clothes in her peripheral vision, she spotted someone wearing a strange disguise, melted makeup and baggy clothes, dark clothes, and boom. That person had tried to shatter the driver's side window with the butt of a gun, and it didn't work. A louder boom. Ashley fired a bullet through the glass to shatter it And she started shooting, emptying the magazine into Sandy Ashley said Sandy was screaming and kicking Ashley did not react like a regular human I mean, I guess most humans wouldn't even get this far But while Sandy is kicking, screaming, defending her life Ashley just kept firing non-stop It was such a gruesome frenzy of bullets That the medical examiner later said She had never done an autopsy this extensive There were so many bullet fragments in Sandy The bullets had ricocheted around, in sandy's body the internal damage was so complex and so extensive she would have such a hard time locating all the micro fractures the tiny tiny little bullet fragments ashley fired eight times into sandy at nearly point blank range sandy was a bloody mess she was soaked in blood her clothes were trenched even the floorboards of her car were saturated It was then Ashley declared Sandy dead and sprinted back to her car and sped away. It was so fast that nobody turned on their lights. Nobody saw her. Nobody woke from their peaceful residential lives. On the way home, Ashley called Tracy and demanded a double cheese pizza, which he refused. Even after she had taken life for him. For him. And he didn't want her to gain weight. He wanted to control her food. The only reason she was even getting pizza, double cheese or not, was because the pizza guy was Tracy's alibi. Yeah, let's talk about this guy's genius plan to get away with murder. Tracy would stay home in their apartment in Brandon, Florida, which is a bit away from Tampa, Florida. It's it's like the next town over. Ashley would be killing Sandy. He would order pizzas from Pizza Hut. He would even omit their apartment number from the delivery so that when the delivery guy got there, he would have to call Tracy, find out what unit it is, and then Tracy would tell him, hey, I'm in the bathroom, the door is open, can you set it on the table? The delivery guy would come into the apartment and Tracy would run out of the bathroom and hand him a $20 tip. He considered it a a big tip. This way, he would surely remember Tracy. The delivery guy would think, oh, Tracy, that guy. Yes, I saw him. I didn't have his unit number. He told me to go in, put it in the counter, and then he gave me 20 bucks. The delivery was going to happen between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. If the murder happened around 11 p.m. over 30 miles away, there was no way in physics Tracy would be the one pulling the trigger. Tracy thought himself to be a very, very smart cookie. And on the way home, Ashley was instructed to get rid of her disguise and the murder weapon. She was told to bury the weapon in the woods, not just throw it in the bushes this time. Which even after Ashley buried it, Tracy became so paranoid, he forced her to go find the murder weapon again and rebury it. And how do you think that she's going to find the murder weapon in the woods? He gave her a metal detector and an ice cream fucking scoop. She was to scoop the dirt. None of this was effective because the cops were suspicious of him just hours after the murder. They tried to find Tracy at his apartment, and when he wasn't home, they left him a call instead. He called them back and left a very arrogant voicemail, pretty much on the lines of, I don't know what you want to talk to me about, but if you're looking for me, feel free to call. The police did him one better. They showed up at his work. They talked to him in an empty room in the gym and listened to this conversation carefully because to me, it sounds so unnatural. Like, you know how you have those interview questions when you prepare for like an interview and you're like, ooh, I want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And you twist every question to make sure that you get your answers in, but it almost doesn't really answer the question. You just kind of have, it's a new question now that you've made up. It kind of sounds like that. The detectives start the conversation by saying, we're working on the case where Sandy Roseau was killed and we'd like to talk to you about it. Tracy responds, I was wondering why you called ever since you called. I thought maybe it had something to do with my ex-wife or daughter who live in that area, which nothing's wrong with them, right? It's really mm-hmm. weird. No, no, your ex-wife and daughter are fine. This involves a homicide investigation we're conducting on Sandy. Tracy dramatically raises his eyebrows. Homicide? It was really weird. They already said that Sandy was killed. So why are you suddenly acting overly shocked? It was a bizarre response. Mm -hmm. It's like he wanted to say, oh my God, I thought my family was okay. Oh, I'm so relieved my family's okay because I'm a family man. (gasps) Sandy was killed? Like, I think he had this plan in his mind of this is the reaction path he wants to go, but they weren't accommodating. Once that happened, Tracy said he could no longer talk to the detectives. Since the ongoing trial, anything regarding Sandy would have to go through his attorney, Vanessa. Fine. The detectives decided to pay a visit to Ashley, which, mind you, at this point in the timeline, the detectives don't even think that Ashley is involved. In Mm -hmm. fact, they hope that she will turn on Tracy and provide incriminating evidence. But when they knock on that apartment door, Ashley was so incredibly nervous while she invited them in. It was bizarre. She looked like she was about to pass out. The detective said she became physically sick in front of our eyes. Her body, in fact, started to shake. Her stomach pumped in and out, quivering. She was on the verge of vomiting. She excused herself multiple times to the bathroom. And the detective said, At first I thought she was going to sneeze. I didn't realize she was getting sick. That's how much her body was convulsing. The detective asked, Are you okay? Ashley literally covered her mouth like she was going to throw up. And the detective was staring at her, dumbstruck. I think I'm going to be sick. Um, listen, can we ask you a personal question? Uh, Sure. Are you pregnant? Is that why you're so ill? We don't want to put you under any stress. That's not our purpose here. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not pregnant. The detectives were more confused. Then why are you so sick? Either way. Okay. They proceeded calmly with their line of questioning. Okay, it's not even questioning. They're just getting some information. Nobody's turning up the heat. Nobody's good cop, bad cop. They're not interrogating her. They actually want her to like them. So she would cooperate later if they needed it. She genuinely had nothing to worry about. But she was so sick at the idea of being questioned by the police, they asked her, So, 4th of July weekend that just passed, what did you do? Uh, I got married. You did? That's great. <laughs> Tell us about it. Sure, sure. Uh, where did you guys get married? Uh, Bayside Healthcare. So Bayside is a rehab center owned by the same gym that the couple work for. And they just use one of the rooms to get married. I'm telling you, peak romance. She continued... We tried to go out and eat sushi, but we couldn't find any. Okay, is there anything else you can tell me that you remember from that night? Fireworks? Fireworks. Uh, I saw fireworks on the interstate. Makes sense. It's the 4th of July. What about the following day, the 5th of July? This is the day of the murder. What did you and your husband do that day? I think we rented some movies. I don't recall. Uh, I remember we hung out with our friend Toby. She's a good friend of ours. Uh, She's starting a business with my husband, Tracy. Who's Toby? Do we have a last name for Toby? Toby? Ashley looked panicked and she stalled. I I don't really remember her last... uh, I think it's white, Toby, Toby white? Toby white, okay, good. Ashley was talking when her phone rang. "Can, Can I get that? Ashley, of course you can get it. This is your home. Ashley ran off to the bedroom, answered the call, and whoever it was was not happy because she came out looking sicker than she was before, if that's even possible. The color had drained from her face and she's sitting there looking like this heavy force was pressing down on both sides of her shoulders. Shortly after, the detectives were able to put two and two together because a very unsettling, strange incident occurred. Tracy Humphreys burst through the front door with beads of sweat just dripping down his bald head like dew on the side of a glass. (sighs) Yeah. Condensation on a beer glass He just barged in Stood there Arms crossed Glaring at Ashley He didn't even acknowledge The detective sitting in the living room He looked like he was going Into anaphylactic shock His face was turning pink And then purple He wasn't choking Maybe he was Maybe the detectives Didn't care if he did He just stared into Ashley's soul Burning holes through her retinas The detectives were weirded out But you know what If he's gonna act like we're not here We're gonna act like he's not here They continued on with the questions. Ashley responded, but now she was even more nervous. Okay, she continued about the 5th of July. We got pizza. Yeah, pizza. I remember we got pizza delivered, watched movies, and then Toby came over. Any idea where you might have ordered the pizza from? Pizza Hut. Didn't even think. The detectives looked at each other. Mr. Clean is staring at Ashley, clenched fists, teeth grinding. He's breathing heavily like a dragon breathing fire out of his bulging nostrils. You're sure it's Pizza Hut? Ashley glanced around. Uh, honey, didn't we order pizza the night we were married? Tracy blinked what? and he exploded. I don't know, honey. You're the one answering the fucking questions. Right at that moment, Tracy's phone rang and it was his lawyer, Vanessa. He put her on speaker and her voice echoed in the room. Listen, Ashley, just take a deep breath and tell them that you don't want to talk anymore. Ashley looked up, glanced around at all the faces staring at her. Uh, on the advice of our attorney, I don't want to talk to you anymore. The detectives left, but now Tracy had a new problem to deal with. Ashley mentioned Toby White, and it wasn't going to be long before the cops got a hold of Toby. Let's talk about Toby, because this is a whole other saga, I tell you. Toby White is a woman in her 40s, but she looked much younger. She had this glow about her. She was bubbly, full of life. But it hadn't always been like that, oddly enough. Tracy helped her become happy, at least to some degree. So Toby had spent over 40 years of her life overweight to the point of it posing a health risk. It messed with her self-confidence. It messed with her self-esteem, her health, everything. She had spent 30 years working a job she hated. She spent 10 years of her life unhappily married. Thankfully, she got a new job. She got divorced. And now, now it was time to live her best life, right? And then she slipped on concrete and broke both of her legs. She was bedridden and she went from being overweight to what the doctors called, quote, obese. She wasn't able to get exercise. She wasn't able to move around. And honestly, she mentally gave up as well. She felt like she had hit rock bottom. And at rock bottom, I got to change it. She's like, I got to change my life. I want to walk right again. I need to be healthy. I need to make these changes. She started working out. She joined the athletics club and she was looking for a personal trainer. The office assigned her Tracy Humphrey. After the first session, she went back to the office and was like, hey, I don't really like the guy. Can I get a new one? He's kind of creepy. It just makes me feel a little uncomfortable, which is the last thing that I need when I'm trying to work out. They're like, we don't have another guy. Sorry. (sighs) Okay, let me give it another chance. The second impression went really well. He was nice. Tracy was relaxed. Toby got in a really good workout. And the guy knew what he was talking about. He gave her a push in the right direction, gave her a lot of good tips on how to eat healthy, what uh, supplements to take. They started with two sessions a week, turned into nearly five, sometimes six. Toby ended up losing over 115 pounds. But more than that, she gained a friend in Tracy. Or so she thought. You know, they were close enough to talk to each other about things while they worked out. And Tracy would always complain about his girlfriends. They were all crazy. They were all jealous, greedy, possessive, hysterical, crazy girls. Toby laughed, but she's a smart woman. She could read between the lines. I mean, she knew that Tracy was the common denominator in all of his failed relationships. He was the one that also openly admitted that he cheated. He was the one that threw the affairs into his girlfriend's faces. So he would do this with Ashley as well. And that that's the power that Tracy seemed to get off on. He liked the fact that he could get caught cheating on his girlfriends and then make them forgive him. That to him was more powerful than the cheating itself. Speaking of Ashley, Toby really liked Ashley. They got along really well. And Toby felt almost like a mother figure to Ashley because she's very young, 20. So whenever they got too close, Tracy would pull them apart. Early 2003, Toby and Tracy decided to go into business together. They were going to open up their own training center. Toby had the funds, the business experience. Meanwhile, Tracy had the fitness knowledge, I guess. I don't know what he brought to the table, honestly. So while they're working on the launch of the business, Toby gets a call from Ashley. She's like, oh my God, I'm freaking out. Like I was just sexually assaulted. I went to the police and they told me that I need to go live with somebody else because what if that person comes back? She Ashley? Never yeah. Oh. It seems like she made up this story. Oh, Because you know Hearing that What is a good friend A good person What do you do You're like well If you need to stay somewhere else You can stay with me Toby had no idea That meant her door was open For Tracy as well Because the next day The couple move in And they just make themselves So comfortable She's like what Toby even walked in On Tracy in the kitchen leaned up against the counter Needle and syringe in hand Shooting steroids Into his stomach Uh, This was news to Toby She had no idea That her personal trainer Was on steroids What the fork Which, side note, a lot of people um, attribute his aggression to his steroid usage. But uh, not me, not me sourcing Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman, a neuro researcher from Stanford University, said that steroids don't actually make you more aggressive. They just bring out the more aggressive side of you if you were already an aggressive person to begin with, basically. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily make you aggressive. It's not a good excuse. That's what I'm trying to say. Toby would wake up in the middle of the night to grab a glass of water and she would nearly jump out of her skin because Tracy would be sitting on the couch in the living room just staring at her door. No TV on, nothing. He didn't even say anything. It was almost as if he was just letting her know, I'm watching you. It's beyond strange. Beyond strange. She hated the way that Tracy treated Ashley, always belittling her, wouldn't let her speak. He was just very disgusting. Now at this point, Sandy Rozo had been murdered and Tracy and Ashley had moved back out. Toby knew about Tracy's sexual assault charges regarding Sandy. She believed that he was innocent. But now that Sandy had been viciously murdered, you know, she starts questioning her own beliefs. Two weeks after the murder, Tracy wants to have a word. Ashley told the cops we were with you the night that Sandy Roseau was murdered. Toby froze. She knew it wasn't true, and she knew that they knew it wasn't true. She didn't say anything, and he continued. I don't have a lot of options here, Toby, and neither do you. You're going to be our alibi. Toby was so scared she found herself nodding. She just said this was a very bad situation and she knew not to challenge him. We made an appointment with you for a, with an attorney. Toby nodded. She could see the intense look in his eyes. He was going to get away with this and to go against that would be very painful. His whole look just looked like, don't fuck with me on this. And then he handed her a piece of paper detailing the events occurred on July 5th, 2003. You understand? She nodded again. According to the piece of paper, Toby went over to the couple's apartment between 9.45 and 10 p.m. Ashley left the apartment after an argument with Tracy. Tracy stayed the whole time and even ordered a pizza. Toby stayed until about 12.30. Say what's on the paper, you hear me? Okay. At one point, Tracy cornered Toby and hammered home his point. He breathed down her face. I'm never going to go to prison. If you betray me, I'll kill you. This statement injected the fear of God into Toby. And when the cops came to talk to her, she did as Tracy had asked. But even though she did what he asked, Tracy was keeping tabs on her nonstop. She felt suffocated, terrified. One day, Tracy couldn't get a hold of Toby most of the day. He waited for her when she got home. He emerged from the shadows. Where have you been? He sounded like he was accusing her. I've been calling you all day. Why didn't you answer your phone? I lost it at Walmart. Well, then I guess we need to go to Walmart right now. Get in the car, Toby. Get in the car, Ashley. On the way to Walmart, the whole ride, he kept assuming, that black Mustang behind us is a cop, isn't it? The Mustang's a cop. The Mustang went separate ways and he got quiet. False alarm? Or is he becoming paranoid? At Walmart, Tracy drags Toby right over to the courtesy desk, the customer service desk, thinking he's going to catch Toby in a lie for sure. She was doing something else. Her cell phone must be at the police station right now. She's lying. She's working with the cops. Toby nervously asked the worker behind the customer service desk, I think I lost my phone here earlier today. Did anyone find a cell phone? The clerk looked bored. She shuffled things around, pulled out a phone. Is this one yours? Sure enough, Toby unlocked the phone to reveal dozens of missed calls from Tracy. Tracy eyed her, but he didn't seem content. They got into the car and he started speeding. He drove erratically, weaving in and out of traffic, yelling about how each car was a cop car. He was running red lights. Toby felt like for sure she was going to die. They didn't stop the reckless driving until they were in the middle of nowhere in a dark, completely desolate area where there weren't even street lights. Tracy forced her out of the car and he spoke in a chilling tone. Toby, right now, tell me. Where were you all day? I told you, Tracy. Toby, what the hell is going on here? I was with my brother. Yeah, but I don't believe you. What can I say though? I was. What do you want me to say? I want to know what the fuck is really going on. Okay? My brother called to complain that the cops were busting his ass, so I drove over there to calm him down. Then I went to Walmart and I lost my phone. At this point, Toby's phone rang and she nervously picked it up. It wasn't on speakerphone, but they could tell it was a woman on the line. Hey, I'm not doing much. I'm in uh, York City with some friends. I'm heading home soon. And then she paused. Paulette, just relax okay i know it's you're freaking out he's in china but calm down i'm gonna come talk to you tonight okay toby had a friend whose husband was in china and she was just very stressed about it mm-hmm. tracy stood there listening to every word look Paula, calm down please i know you're upset but look i'm 20 minutes away i'll be home soon and we can talk about it then tracy was over it he starts walking towards the car while toby is finishing up her call Thankfully, Toby went home unharmed. But not too long after, Toby came home to find that, um, you know the garage lock pad where you put in the code to open the garage? It was Mm -hmm. open. So she freaked out and left home to stay with family in North Carolina for a week. And as soon as she got back, Tracy tackled her to the ground and basically started assaulting her. Like, sat her sat on her back bent her arms painfully where were you where were you you're turning on us i'm gonna fucking kill you if you're working with the police do you hear me and she's begging him please i'm not please you better fucking tell me right now i'll kill you and it'll be a long painful process tracy was becoming more and more paranoid something in his gut told him that toby had turned on him and i guess his gut was right remember when toby was questioned by the police Initially, she stuck with her story, but um, she was scared. She was scared of Tracy. She said the lies. She pretended to be the alibi. And then the police confronted her with evidence that they had on Tracy and Ashley. And Toby could not lie. Toby couldn't lie for someone she now believed had raped a woman and then killed her or had his wife kill her. All Toby could think about was Sandy's daughter. She said, how do you ever make it up to a child who's lost her mother? You can't. But if there's a little part you can do, you want to do it. I was in a unique situation that no one else was in. Remember how Toby lost her phone at Walmart? She was at the police station all day trying to provide evidence. And the she left her phone at the police station because they were trying to get data from it. The clerk at the customer service desk at Walmart was a police officer. What? Who had rushed Toby's phone from the station to the Walmart. Whoa. How did they anticipate Toby's lie to Tracy? Toby was wired, and her wire was live that day. They could wow. hear her in real time, and they immediately were like, we gotta fucking go to Walmart. Oh my gosh. That's why she was so nervous when she asked the clerk. Because oh if she gosh. said no, it's game over. Wow. But the minute that Toby left Walmart, her wire somehow Just mishaped It didn't work. So the police were terrified when they lost track of Tracy's car because he was weaving in and out of traffic. That's why, quote, Paula called Toby to make sure she was alive. Mm -hmm. Remember the week that Toby left town? She was in witness protection. On numerous occasions, Toby wore a wire and attempted to get a confession out of Tracy. He was too paranoid. He refused to let anyone talk about the murder out loud or even any incriminating information they would write down on a piece of paper and then Tracy would destroy it immediately in front of everyone. Toby could not get confessions, but her bravery is incredible. She did not have to risk her life. She did it for Sandy and for Sandy's family to get the justice that they deserved. December 18th of 2003, the police arrested Ashley with murder and Tracy with breaking probation. They did not have enough evidence against Tracy. Using Ashley's cell phone data, they could place her at the crime scene, but Tracy was home. So they arrested him with breaking probation because he had gone to a shooting range and he's not allowed to handle guns because he's on probation. Oh, and it wasn't until they were arrested that Ashley found out that Tracy is not 29 years old, but he's 36 years old. So now the cops, they hoped that once Ashley was arrested, they could unravel all of Tracy's lies and she would be in shock and she would turn on him and work out a deal to testify against him. But for months, Ashley stuck by Toby. Even when the police presented all the facts, all the evidence, they had straight up pictures of Sandy's injuries after her kidnapping and assault. And Ashley could not deny it any longer. She knew that her husband was a cruel rapist and killer, but she didn't care. She saw his other arrest history of all the domestic violence charges, his rape charges. Nothing phased her. Mm-mm. She was like, I'm still not going to testify against him. Whatever. Put me in prison for life. I don't care. You know what tipped her over the edge? What? When the police out of nowhere, they were like, by the way, your husband is bisexual. Oh, she was like, disgusting. Let me sign a deal.
0: No way.
1: Yes. That's why I'm telling you. She's not a good person. What? Apparently, um, he had introduced Ashley to his gay best friend slash hairdresser. Apparently, they were seeing each other sexually. So and this she is,
0: feels betrayed.
1: But what's funny is that she had been openly cheated on by Tracy with other women. So it's not the cheating part. Mm. It's. I think that she's a oh, homophobe I think
0: I see
1: Because I understand To me Cheating is cheating Doesn't matter Which gender you cheat with Cheating is cheating Right Yeah 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 But she knew that he was cheating With other women
0: Yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: Now, here's an interesting theory that the police have come up with. Tracy was never violent with any of his male partners. In fact, he was a very good boyfriend. Law enforcement officers speculate, and this is not a scientific psychological theory, it's a speculation, that Tracy was so into toxic masculinity. He hated the fact that he was gay or bisexual. He hated the fact that he probably wasn't as attracted to women as he was men. And with this anger and rage that he had, had he was this aggressive evil person to begin with regardless of his sexuality he started taking it out on women he was angry at women for his own identity we know that he hated being called gay because um, sometimes people would laugh and joke that he looked like a gay mr clean because he was very bald and very clean-cut looking i guess he hated the nickname with a fire-burning passion and threatened to beat up anyone who called him that so basically the law enforcement officers theorized that he hated women Because he wasn't attracted to him, which women just really can never win, right? So Ashley could forgive anything, kidnapping, rape, murder, domestic violence. But being gay slash bisexual was, that's why she drew the moral line, the ethical line, okay? So while they're in prison for murder now, Tracy actually had a quick escape during a transport situation. In a prison van, he was going from one prison to another, and he escaped the prison van, (gasps) He was caught, thankfully, very quickly. No crimes were committed. But uh, on top of that, he hired someone to kill Toby White. That didn't work. Yeah. At one point, she was briefly kidnapped and stuck in the trunk of her car. Who? Toby White. Oh, my goodness. But she was saved. The police located her. So a lot is going on. But all Tracy cared about were his macros in prison. He was losing weight. He hated it, you know? The protein and the, the carb ratio wasn't hitting too much sugar he also behaved very strangely at one point he shaved every inch of his body sat in the middle of his cell butt naked meditating while tears streamed down his face valentine's day of 2006 ashley testified against tracy she had pleaded guilty to second degree murder of sandy rozo and would only receive 25 years in prison she will be released in 2031 Tracy shockingly took the stand. He tried to convince the court that he was a nice, sweet guy, but all he proved was that he was a raging narcissist. He tried to paint that Ashley was unhinged and killed Sandy out of anger and jealousy, and he was this loving husband who was sad that Sandy died, but also couldn't bring himself to turn in his loving wife. But he just came off very arrogant. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. I hope... He rots in prison. I hope he gets the nastiest, sugary, carby food that just, oh, I hope every bite he takes, he's just thinking about the torture of the macros and he loses his mind over not getting his magnesium supplements. But this whole case is just disgusting. All the perpetrators, even Ashley, I know to a degree she was a victim in the relationship, but she, and she was very young, but just gives me the ick. The fact that she didn't turn on him until she found out he was bisexual, i don't like think back when you were 20 this is just not normal even in a toxic abusive relationship most women do not go and kill other women or anyone and make sure to stay safe and i'll see you guys on sunday for the mini sewed. bye